Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we recognize your presence here in the midst of us, Lord, as we gather in your name, we thank you for your presence. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that it would fill us, that it would lead and guide us. Holy Spirit, come, be our teacher. Lead us into truth this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen. This morning, I want to talk about a fundamental truth that many of us know, but that most of us struggle to believe. Fundamentals. Some of you are bored already. (laughs) But I believe this, that fundamentals are the foundation for flourishing. I learned this uh, playing baseball growing up. I I grew up playing baseball. Here we go. That is Jacob Taylor, six years old in all his glory. It's been downhill ever since. I'm thinking about bringing that mullet back, though. If I take a poll, what do you think? I think Megan has the trump card, though. I'm not sure that it'll fly. I really want that mullet back, though. But yeah, I mean, I loved everything about the sport growing up. I watched baseball. I played baseball. I wore baseball hats every chance I could. I traded baseball cards. I I mean, baseball was life. It was baseball and Jesus for me growing up. And anytime we were in a baseball game and things began to spiral out of control, or anytime we found ourselves in a losing streak, Any Royals fans know about that? How? This is what every coach I had would do. Every coach did the same thing. I had lots of coaches, and every coach would huddle us together. Whether we were like six years old or high school students, he'd say, all right, boys, things are spiraling out of control. We've been losing for a long time. It's time that we focus on the fundamentals, Right? I think we all can relate to this feeling of things spiraling out of control. I think for the last two years, we felt that we're on a losing streak, right? So many of us have lost so much. And so in the midst of our society right now that's filled with anxiety and division and depression, which leads to questioning of self-worth for so many because of our isolation during the season, in the midst of this spiraling out of control and this losing streak, I'd like to be this morning for us the voice of a coach. As we huddle together in the sanctuary and and online, this morning, can we just pause all of that and can we take some time to focus on the fundamentals together? I believe that if we do, we'll be able to reassure ourselves that we have a sure foundation for flourishing in the season to come. Amen? Amen. Well, here is the fundamental truth that I'd like to focus on and center our time together. It's out of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verse 16 says this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Here is the fundamental truth that many of us know, but that most of us struggle to believe. God is love, and God loves you. I learned this, like many of you did, as a young child. For me, I learned it with a song. It goes, Jesus loves me, this I know. 
you didn't leave me hanging. You know it too. See, we know it. I learned at three years old that God loves me, that I am the beloved. But I've been spending the last 34 years each day working out if that's really true. That's why today's message is called Beloved, but Hard to Believe It. If we can come to believe that God loves us, I believe that it will lay the foundation for our flourishing in life, especially in the midst of an anxious and divided world. During our Colorado retreat last year, I got to sit down and have a conversation with one of our online members, Cindy Lamb. Cindy, if you're joining us this morning, hi. Uh, that conversation has stuck with me all year long. It's just replayed in my mind over and over and over again because in the midst of that conversation, Cindy gave me a gift. In fact, she gave us a gift because we captured this conversation on camera and we shared the interview as a part of our 40th anniversary celebration earlier in the year, in November. And I thought once again this morning, before we go any further, that I would once again share this gift from Cindy with you all. So check out this video. My name is Cindy Lamb and I'm from Oklahoma City. I didn't find Word of Life first, I found Brian Zahn first. I was attending the Apprentice Gathering in Wichita several years ago. Brian was one of the speakers and I was really uh, drawn to his message. I had a really transformative experience as a college student with a college pastor. One of the things she taught us in our discipleship group was she said, I'm going to teach you a simple prayer to pray. And I challenge you that if you pray this prayer, it will change your life. I thought, all right, I'm going to do it. And she said, it's so simple. You will be um, tempted to discount it. But the prayer is simply this. God, teach me that you love me. And not overnight, but over time, that prayer began to change me. And I began to really believe, not just here, but deep in my soul and body that God loved me. Go forward another 20 years, I was married, I had two kiddos, I was pregnant with our third, and my husband, on his way to church on a Sunday morning, my boys had a fever and I stayed home with them, had head-on collision with a drunken teenager. Six weeks after the wreck, I went into the hospital. He's on one floor in a coma, I'm on another floor, giving birth to our third child. Months later, he comes out of the coma slowly, uh, eventually came home after 22 months of some kind of rehab or hospitalization. And I remember sitting in that waiting room, waiting for Steve to wake up, and feeling the very real presence of God, and writing a thank you note to my college pastor, and said, I'm in, I'm in so much pain, I don't know my future. But I know that God has not abandoned me. And I know that God loves me and Steve and my children. And it's because of the prayer you taught me to pray. It's beautiful. God, teach me that you love me. It's so simple you'll be tempted to discount it. 
God, teach me that you love me. If you can learn to pray this prayer, it will change your life. And it did, it changed Cindy's life. In her story, it was in her place of pain that the true test came. In the hospital that day, she truly had learned. She had come to know and believe that God loved her. It is in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of struggle and loss that we often ask the question, God, where are you? And it may be hardest to believe that God is love and that God loves us in the season of pain, in the midst of sorrow. But I believe, as scripture tells us, that God is near the brokenhearted. Amen? God is near to the brokenhearted. And I believe that God does. He desires intimacy with us, not just when we have it all together, not when we're on the mountaintop, but rather when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God desires for us to know that he is with us. He desires intimacy with us, not when we are well, but when we are sick, not when all is going well in our lives, but when all is falling apart, not when we are on the mountaintop, but when we are in the valley low. In all of those moments, Every moment of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the joy and the sorrow, God desires intimacy with us, to be with us, to make his presence known to us, to draw near to us. And as the famous psalm, Psalm 23, this psalm which I just delight in praying over my daughter every night at bedtime, it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. First John 4 goes on to tell us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Did you know that there seems to be a kind of fear that permeates our current age? Do you feel that? It's a fear that permeates our current age and, and it expresses itself. It's often experienced for many of us in the form of anxiety. Whether it be a fear of not having enough and therefore our obsession about an impending economic downturn, our fear of being powerless, therefore our obsession with clinging to power through politics, our fear of being unseen, therefore our obsession with posting incessantly on social media, our fear of not being enough, therefore our addiction to activity and work to prove our worth our fear of being sad, therefore our obsession and need for constant entertainment, our fear of rejection, our fear of abandonment, of loneliness, and ultimately our fear of death. Do you feel this fear that seems to permeate our current age? And yet we are reminded at this cross of Christ. I love that this remains here in the center of our worship space together for most of the year. Because as I gaze upon it, and as we gaze upon this cross this morning, we are reminded that in Christ, God joins us in our fear, in our pain, in our powerlessness, in our abandonment, in our loneliness, and ultimately, God in Christ on the cross joins us in death. 
the cross reveals to us the lengths at which God is willing to go to show you that he loves you. That death is not too great a price to pay for God to show you that he loves you. He gives his all for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but that would receive the kind of life that lasts forever, eternal life. This is beautiful. This is the kind of work that happens on the cross that scripture tells us that God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, where fear begins to build barriers between us and God and should I say us and each other? Ephesians tells us that God is tearing down at the cross those walls of hostility that divide us. That God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself because God desires intimacy with us, union with us, communion with us. You are wanted. Can I say that to you this morning? Someone needs to hear this. You are wanted God desires your presence. We often talk about, oh, yearning and desperation for the presence of God, but think about this. God is desperate for your presence. Whoa. It's beautiful. Jesus, Jesus embodies this for us. He models it for us. Just, he's our, our teacher, our example, our guide. And often we see this kind of intimacy between Jesus and his heavenly father. We see Jesus when he is worn out, slipping away to the private place to be with the Father. He says, the Father and I are one in John chapter 10, verse 30. And oftentimes, even in the prayer that he teaches us to pray, he addresses his heavenly Father as Abba. Abba, it's a language of intimacy. It's the language of a toddler crying out, Daddy. And I think there's something profound there. That while Jesus is brilliant and courageous, Jesus is also one who walks in intimacy with his father, in close relationship, in common union with the father. I believe that if we can come to know and believe the love that God has for us, then just as John 4 tells us, we will abide in God and God will abide in us and we will become one with God. Amen. Our life and the life of God will just become one. It's, it's like a uh, hot tea. Look at that, carrying a tea bag with me. I don't like hot tea. I'm a coffee drinker. Anyone else? But, you know, we are, many of us around the world are mourning the loss of Queen Elizabeth. And I'm reminded of hot tea because cowboys drink coffee, but queens drink tea, right? So anytime I'm wanting to feel fancy, you know what I do? I think I'll have some hot tea. I have my pinky up, right? I'm like, I don't even know that you're supposed to hold a tea bag like this, but I feel like it's right. And you know what I do when I brew tea? This is what, this is what happens. I, I put on the kettle, the water gets hot, and I get a coffee mug and I pour the water in my coffee mug, steaming hot, and I get out the tea bag, and I begin to anxiously dip, right? Over and over and over and over, I'm dipping the bag. Anyone else a dipper in here? Do we have any dippers when it comes to making hot tea? You're dipping over and over, and you're going, come on, I need some hot tea right now. Like, there, I know there's caffeine in those leaves. Give me that caffeine now. Like, I gotta have it. 
I know there's a, there's a picturesque, idealistic fall autumn moment waiting to happen in this tea bag where I can sit down next to the fire and be at peace. And so we anxiously dip our tea bag. Hopefully we get our tea quickly. But anyone who's an actual tea drinker, do I have any tea drinkers in the house? Hot tea drinkers. Okay, I know you're slowly raising your hand, but they know that tea needs to steep, right? That to actually make good tea, you simply place the tea bag in the water. There's nothing that needs to happen, no activity, but the tea bag simply needs to be completely submerged in the hot water. And not overnight, but over time, as Cindy would say. Not instantly, but about what, four minutes, I think, for most teas. The water will completely saturate the tea leaves. And at that moment, when every fiber of the tea is saturated, it begins to release its flavor. And the water and the tea become one. I believe this is a picture of what God desires of us. That we would, not in anxious activity, try to become one with God, but rather that we would allow our lives to steep in the presence of God, in the love of God. That we could find ourselves simply being surrounded by the very love of God, the presence of God. And as we allow the love of God to saturate our lives, every fiber, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the wonderful things and the hideous things, that our lives would begin to release a kind of beautiful, unique flavor into the world around us as one with God. It reminds me of the story of Naaman found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Do you know the story of Naaman? Naaman's the commander of the Syrian army. Naaman is a man of honor and valor. Naaman has achieved great accomplishments and success in the military for the Syrian army. And Naaman is known and celebrated for his accomplishments. Naaman wears his, his armor with pride. He's a man of pride. But underneath his armor, it's more complicated because along with his success is also his struggle. Along with all his wins are his wounds because Naaman was also a leper. Naaman walked around with armor covering his true woundedness, which is that he was a man of leprosy. And if you know anything about lepers, they were not known and celebrated they were rejected, abandoned, cast out, condemned, unknowable, untouchable. Naaman often wondered, I'm sure, this is not in the text, but read between the lines, what would people do if they really knew? Would they still love me? Would they still like me? Would they still celebrate me or would all be lost? I'm sure he lived in perpetual fear and anxiety of the truth being known. And in an ironic turn, which God seems to do in scripture, it's a little girl who serves as a servant in the house of Naaman who comes to know him fully. To know the complicated man who is Naaman, the warrior and the wounded, the story of success and the sorrow that he carries from the illness in his body. And she says to Naaman, I believe that you can find healing if you go and find the man of God in Israel, the prophet of the Lord. And so Naaman 
has a glimmer of hope for his story. And he goes to the king of Syria requesting permission to travel to the land of Israel to see the prophet of the Lord. Permission is granted. Naaman takes his entourage of men and he heads to the house of Elijah. He shows up at the door expecting in a culture of hospitality and honor that Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, would answer and welcome him in and have a feast, a meal prepared to sit and welcome a man of valor and honor into his home. But instead, Elisha sends his servant to deliver a message. Go and bathe in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. You would think Naaman Naaman would be overjoyed. Thank God there's an answer. I traveled, a little girl in my house, she knows my struggle, my sorrow, my pain, my brokenness, my illness. There is no cure for leprosy and yet there is hope. And all the way there, I'm sure he's thinking, God, I hope this works. God, I hope this works. He shows up and he's given an answer. Go bathe in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And you would think that his reaction would be thanksgiving. But instead... Naaman, accustomed to living from a place of pride and ego, projecting his, if you will, his false self into the world, living from a place of insecurity propped up by this kind of man of valor mask that he wears, the armor covering his true woundedness, he reacts in anger. You know that often insecurity reveals itself as anger. Can I just say that? And that often anger is rooted in fear. He reacts in anger. He's furious. Why? Because how dare Elisha send his servant? Does he not know who I am? I am Naaman. Naaman the great, the commander of the Syrian army, and yet he sends a servant, a lowly servant, to deliver a message. And what's more, he wants me to go bathe in the Jordan River, the dirty river among a dirty people. Does he not know the beautiful rivers that we have in Syria? Do you hear the ego and the pride? Do you see the insecurity, the fear that manifests in anger? But thank God, Naaman's heart of stone begins to soften. And he makes a decision to walk in the way of humility. And maybe for the first time in this mighty warrior's life, we see a true act of courage. He leads his entourage down to the banks of the Jordan River where for the first time maybe in his whole life among his comrades, he lets down the armor. And for the first time he's vulnerable in front of his men. He still carries his success. All the accomplishments he's had, they're not robbed from him, but now, now we see Naaman for who he really is and that is a man who is a warrior, but who is also wounded. A man of success, but also a man of sorrow. Naaman takes his wounded body and he submerges himself in the waters of the Jordan River. And he bathes once, twice, seven times. Naaman allows the love of God in liquid form to completely saturate his body. And just as we come forth from the waters of baptism as new creations in Christ Jesus, the old passing away, and behold, all things are made new. Just as we experience new life in Christ through the waters of baptism, Naaman emerges from those waters a new creation, completely healed 
and whole. Amen. How often are we like Naaman? We compensate for our woundedness and our insecurities by putting on a front. We wear our armor, if you will. We live from a place of insecurity, projected as a false confidence. We ensure that we're defined by our accomplishments rather than being known for who we really are. That we are people who are, yes, warriors. We win in life. We have success in life, but we're also wounded. We also struggle, each and every one of us. This is the human condition, to live in the tension between success and struggle. We often ask the question as Naaman did, if they really knew me, would they love me? If they really knew me, would they accept me? If they really knew me, would they like me? But there, can I tell you this morning, there is a freedom. There is a freedom in being fully known. There, there is a freedom in being, that's why if you have a good friend, a good friend who knows your faults and your failures and still stands by your side in life, there's, it's a kind of liberating freedom. A kind of confidence is built in you when you are fully known. And I will say this, that you will never be fully loved until you allow yourself to be fully known. You will never experience what it is like to be fully known until you allow yourself to be fully known. And I'll say to you this morning, God knows you. He knows you fully. He knows your wins and your wounds. He knows your successes and your struggles. He knows you and he loves you in your illness, in your shame, in your pain, in your sorrow, in your fear. God knows you and loves you. I'm going to say it again. God knows you and loves you. Hear me what I'm saying. God knows you and loves you. This is such good news. As you are right now, you have nothing to prove, nothing to do, just to sit and receive, to steep in the love of God that you are fully known in this moment as you are. There is nothing you can hide from God. And yet the response you receive is love. I believe that if we can know this and believe this, that we can live from a place of true confidence, true confidence, not projected confidence, not propped up confidence, but true confidence as the beloved. The late Brennan Manning, who is an author and priest, has a lot to say about this. He's focused a lot of his work in life he passed away some years ago, but a lot of his work, especially late in life, was centered on receiving the love of the Father, receiving the love of God. And he tells a story about serving as a priest, a chaplain in a, the only leper colony in the United States. It's, it's closed now, it's a museum, but at the time it was in just outside Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Carville, Louisiana had the only leper colony in the United States. It's, we call it Hansen's disease, but it, it's known as leprosy. And as he was walking up the front stairs one day, the nurses came out to him and said, Brennan, we need you to come quickly. Yolanda, one of our patients, is dying and she needs prayer. She would like to be prayed for. So he made his way to Yolanda's room. Yolanda's 37 years old. And while she lay in that bed, 
as a victim of leprosy. You see, leprosy doesn't just cause, it doesn't cause body parts to fall off. What happens is it causes the body to reabsorb parts, especially of the face, the ears, the eyes, the nose. They begin to sink back into the body. And then it causes for the nerve endings to die in the extremities of the body. And so Yolanda laid there with her face sunken in and her hands now just nubs, surrounded by photos of the most stunningly beautiful woman Brennan had ever seen. He said she wasn't just cute, she was magnificent. And the same woman in those pictures, five years later, now lays in that bed, breathing her last breaths, completely unrecognizable. And it's a sad story because two years before this moment, Yolanda's husband divorced her because of the stigma related to leprosy. And then on top of that, refused her two sons who were 14 and 16 years old from coming to visit her. And because he was a violent drunk, they feared for the safety of their lives and obeyed their father, though it broke their heart. So Yolanda is abandoned and forsaken as she lies on her deathbed. Brennan pulls out the flask of oil, which he carries, and he anoints her head with oil and begins to pray for her. At the end of the prayer, he, with his head bowed, he opens his eyes, and on this rainy, gloomy day, the, the room is filled with light, and he says, thank you, God, for the sunshine. Maybe this will lift her spirits. But as he raises his head, he sees that the face of Yolanda is shining bright. He says it was like sunbursts over the mountains. A thousand streaming beams of light came from her face, literally so brilliant that he had to shield his eyes. He says, Yolanda, you look so happy. Yolanda says, Father, I am so happy. Brennan says, would you share with me why? Why are you so happy? She says, oh, the Abba of Jesus has just told me that he's going to take me home. Hot tears began to stream down Brennan's face. And after a long pause, Brennan says, Yolanda, would you tell me exactly what the Abba of Jesus said to you? And Yolanda begins to quote from Song of Solomon chapter 2. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing has come. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Six hours later, Yolanda breathed her last and entered her rest in the loving arms of the one who called her. A couple hours after her passing, Brennan is speaking with some of the staff that cared for Yolanda. And they said, did you know Yolanda was illiterate? She had never read the Bible. She had never read any books for that matter. Brennan, realizing he had never said those words from Song of Solomon to Yolanda, but Jesus had. And I believe that Jesus speaks those words to us this morning. Would you open yourself to hear them, to receive them? Would you, like Naaman, be willing to walk in the way of humility and recognize you need to be loved? That to experience true freedom, to experience 
true love, you need to be fully known. Will you hear Jesus say to you this morning, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away? For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to do, except maybe this, to let go. And maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time, I would invite you to let go of your way of going through the world, forcing your way forward, and to sit and receive, to let go of your pride and your ego, even your insecurities, and admit that you need to be loved as you are, to let go of your belief that you have to prove yourself to God, that you have to be good enough to be loved. Let go and simply be still in the presence of God. This is what sitting with Jesus is all about. We learn about this in prayer school. We have a prayer school coming up. We learn about sitting with Jesus. We call it sitting with Jesus, but most people call it contemplative prayer. And uh, Rich Velotis shares this in his latest book about contemplative prayer. He says this, he says, contemplative prayer recognizes that our prayers do not bring God to us, but position us to grow in our awareness of God's nearness. We don't summon God, but we fix our hearts on the truth that he is always summoning us to communion with him. I pray that we can fix our hearts on the truth that God is love and that God loves you. God desires to be with you just as you are, that you may be fully known and therefore fully loved. Even with all your junk, with all your shame, with all your pain, with all your accomplishments, with all your success, with all your fear, all your greed, all your lust, all your sin, all your failures, all your insecurities, all your doubts and your anxieties, all of it, may it be fully known in the presence of God and may you experience Maybe for the first time, even this morning, in this moment, the love of God for you. And if we can accept this love, which is available to us today, then we can go into the world out there, which is divided and anxious, and become a confident, calm presence to a world who very much needs the same love that we've received. Amen? Amen. Would you stand on your feet with me this morning? We confess that this bread which we break is our participation in the broken body of Christ and this cup which we bless is our participation in the shed blood of Christ. In other words, 
We believe here at this table, this is a point where we can connect our life with the life of God, the very life of God present here at this table. It's an invitation this morning to arise and have, you're being summoned to communion with God this morning. In just a moment, we're going to confess our faith together. We're going to pray a prayer of confession and admit our sins. And then we're going to experience the love of God in the form of unconditional forgiveness. And then an usher will release you row by row. And you will have the opportunity, everyone is welcome, to come and experience the very presence of God at this table. Let's make our confession this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. And it is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. For it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.